Today is June 10th, 2020, and this is episode number 11 of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. And this will be a very philosophical episode of Blurred Laws and Life. But first, before we get to that, I have some very exciting news. At the request of my producers, I opened a Blurred Laws and Life Instagram account, Blurred Laws and Life. I opened it up this week, and within 24 hours, we had 62 followers on Instagram. Now, to put that into perspective, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has 180 million followers on Instagram. And Cristiano Ronaldo, the soccer player, has the most at 220 million. Now, I am no math major. I did not major in math. But we did have 62 followers within 24 hours. And since there are seven days in a week and 30 days in a month and 52 weeks in a year, by my calculation, and I believe my math is right here, within 3.2 months we will pass the rock and we'll have more than 180 million followers on Instagram. I think my math is right there. You guys can make this happen. In the words of Tom Brady, let's go. Now, a moment ago, I did say that this will be a very philosophical edition of Blurred Laws in Life, and it will be dedicated to the butterfly effect. What is the butterfly effect? I am reading from Wikipedia. In chaos theory, the butterfly effect is a sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic non-linear system can result in large differences in a later state. And the butterfly effect is termed the butterfly effect because of the work of Edward Lorenz, whose scientific study showed that the mere flapping of butterfly wings can affect the formation of a tornado and the trajectory of a tornado. So you change very small initial facts, and it then can have a significant outcome on later facts or the ultimate outcome of a set of circumstances. And why is today's episode of Blurred Laws in Life dedicated to the butterfly effect? Well, I've thought about it a lot in my own life, but it really hit home for me this week. And when did it hit home? It hit home when I saw that Drew Brees was asked in an interview as a result of George Floyd's murder and the subsequent protests, whether he would now support the kneeling during the national anthem by NFL football players as a form of protest for police brutality. And Drew Brees said he would never support the kneeling during the national anthem. He was then chastised, ridiculed, and called out severely by his own teammates and by the African-American community at large. 
He then was forced to issue numerous apologies, but his life will literally, probably never be the same as a result of those comments. And I began to think to myself that had George Floyd not been murdered by a police officer, Drew Brees would not have been asked those questions and he would not have given those answers and his life would not be changed today. And then, of course, I began to think, well, it really didn't start with the murder of George Floyd. It started with the decision by a clerk in a convenience store in Minneapolis to call the police after noticing what he believed to be a counterfeit $20 bill given to him by George Floyd. Had that clerk either not noticed what he believed to be a counterfeit $20 bill or decided not to call the police and just to let it go, then George Floyd would still be alive today and Drew Brees' life would be no different. And then I thought, well, it goes back even further than that because we don't know how George Floyd got that $20 bill in the first place. Who gave it to him? Had that person never given it to him, then the events would not have unfolded as they did. And of course, you can take it all the way back to the beginning, like you can take any set of facts back to the creation of the atom. But the aftermath of these events, of course, go well beyond Drew Brees. The world has changed in the last week. There have been protests, sometimes violent protests, not just in the United States, but literally across the world. Monuments have been removed that have stood for 100 years. I saw that a monument of a statue of Robert E. Lee was removed. I saw that the United States government is thinking about renaming army bases that are named after Confederate soldiers. There is a true reawakening of um, racial discrimination and the systemic racial discrimination that exists in this country. I saw that HBO is removing Gone with the Wind from its catalog of movies. Of course, it goes much beyond even that. I saw that Roger Goodell from the NFL stated that they were wrong in restricting players and penalizing players for speaking out on racial injustices in the world. People have lost their lives as a result of these events. Um, we've seen other police officers who have violently attacked protesters and um, who themselves have now been indicted in addition to the police officers in Minneapolis. Countless lives have been affected. There is a true reawakening of this movement to prevent racial discrimination in the world as a result of what we've experienced in the last week or so. And truly, if you think about it, none of that happens if a convenience store clerk in Minneapolis either does not notice the $20 bill, does not believe that it was counterfeit, and does not call the police. The butterfly effect. The sensitive dependence on initial conditions 
in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. There are several events in my life for which the butterfly effect has been particularly applicable. In fact, going back to my senior year in college, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, I played baseball and I was an athlete and I did not give much thought to what I would do after college. Um, One day my senior year in the fall, I happened to be walking in the student union and I noticed a sign that said that the LSAT, which is a law school aptitude test, was that Saturday and um, anyone interested could still sign up. And I had never given thought to going to law school, but I decided to sign up. And that Saturday morning, without even studying for it, taking no preparatory classes whatsoever, which is unthinkable in today's world, I woke up and I told my roommate, Mike Morales, I said, I'm going to take the LSAT. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, I'm thinking about going to law school. And uh, I think he said something like, you're out of your mind or you've never mentioned this or okay. And um, off I went and I did okay. I did better than I might have expected having not studied. Then I went ahead and applied just to one or two law schools because I still wasn't really that adamant about going to law school at all. I figured I would get a job and after college, I wasn't sure what I would do with my life. So I only applied to one or two law schools and one of them I did not get in and the other one I was on the waiting list and literally maybe two weeks before the law school year was about to start, I received a phone call. I remember I was at my brother's house at the time and um, my mother called me and said that uh, Loyola Law School had called and um, to give them a call and I did and they advised me that the pretty much the last slot, the student who had it, decided to do something different and I was next on the waiting list and did I want to go? And I said, okay. And um, of course, had I never seen that sign for the law school aptitude test and had that student not taken a different course with his or her own life, I probably would never have even gone to law school. I end up going to law school and I do well. Um, I study very hard and I end up graduating fourth in my law school class. Now, the best thing that you can do after graduating law school, the most prestigious thing, is to get a one-year clerkship with a federal judge, whether it be a federal district court judge or a federal court of appeal judge or, a, of course, the United States Supreme Court. And um, I applied for a federal clerkship with a federal judge in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which was about a hour drive from New Orleans. And I later learned that Judge John Parker, who was the chief judge, um, selected 15 or 20 people to interview, that he had resumes from the top students at the top law schools across the country, Harvard, Yale, University of Michigan, Stanford. And um, I was one of those that he selected to interview. I drove to Baton Rouge that day. I was scheduled to interview, and it just so happened that Judge Parker was in a trial, and it was lasting long, and it got to be past 5 o'clock, and his secretary came out and said that Judge Parker needed to reschedule the interview because 
this trial was lasting until the next day and he had to prepare for it. And would I mind coming back, you know, in a few days or the next week? And I said, sure, no problem. And I did. And I ended up interviewing and he ended up hiring me. And I was told by the judge and by his secretary that the reason why they hired me was because I did not blink when they said they could not interview me that day. And I did not hesitate when they said, would you be willing to come back, drive back in the next couple of days? And that that made me memorable. And he liked my attitude and he hired me. And of course that becomes significant because the law firm that I ended up going to that I'm still at to this day, King and Blue in Nashville, Tennessee, at the time only hired federal law clerks. They did not hire students right out of law school. They felt that the federal law clerks were the best and the brightest, and that's all they hired. And one day I received the firm brochure um, sent to the chambers of Judge Parker, and I looked at uh, the King and Blue brochure, and it looked like an interesting place to work. And so I decided, what the heck, and I told them I was interested, and they ended up hiring me. So when my clerkship was over, off to Nashville I went. And when I arrived, I realized that there was an issue. King and Ballou had hired literally 24 new associates when I began. And the reason they hired so many was because they had massive litigation for a particular client that was supposed to last for years. But in between the time we all were hired and we started, all that litigation settled. So 24 new associates descended upon Nashville, Tennessee with little or no work. And we were told that um, only the best would end up surviving. Shortly after I began, I was standing in the hallway in the law firm and Mr. Ballou, the senior partner, walked out of his office and he saw me and he waved me over and he said that we had an issue in New York with one of our clients, the Tribune Company, and would I be able to go with him to New York the next day? And I said, sure. I asked him what it was about and he said he wasn't sure, but it was something about workers' compensation claims. So we went to New York that next day, and what I learned was that the Tribune Company was the client. They owned the New York Daily News previously, but they had sold it after a very bitter and violent strike that had occurred a couple of years earlier. And that strike actually was the subject of a later book called The Daily News War, that described the strike and all the violence that occurred as part of it. And what we learned was that after the Tribune Company sold the New York Daily News, virtually all the employees, not all, but virtually all, had filed workers' compensation claims alleging hearing loss. And that with the Tribune Company out of New York, the workers' compensation firm that was handling it um, was settling these cases, and the Tribune Company had paid a lot of money to settle some of these cases, and there were a lot, hundreds and hundreds of cases remaining. And um, the Tribune Company was self-insured, they were responsible for these costs, and they wanted someone to look over what had occurred and to determine what to do moving forward. 
And so I was tasked to stay behind for what was supposed to be a couple of days to evaluate the claims and to attend some of these hearings of the Workers' Compensation Board. And um, I did. After being there for several days, those several days turned into several months. And after doing my investigation, I decided to recommend to um, Mr. Ballou and to the um, client, the Tribune Company, that we file a civil RICO action in federal court against nearly 600 individuals. And I remember when I recommended that to Mr. Ballou, um, he said, Richard, we're going to do what you say, but you better be right. So the pressure was on. Those several days, which had turned into several months, ended up turning into five years of litigation where we litigated that civil RICO case in New York. I asked uh, Mr. Ballou during this time why he chose me to go to New York rather than one of the other 23 associates that started at the same time that I did or any of the other senior associates, more senior associates, or any of the partners. And he said, because you were standing in the hall when I walked out of my office after getting the call. And I said, that's it? And he said, that's it. Now, two stories about New York or three stories about New York and the butterfly effect. After those initial meetings in New York in February of 1993, uh, when I was supposed to just be there for a day or two, I went home for a day or two to Nashville to pack up and returned on February 26, 1993, and literally returned for good, or for at least the next five or six years. And I remember the date, February 26, 1993, for a specific reason. I arrived in New York around 10.30 that morning, and I had reservations at the World Trade Center Hotel. There was a hotel in the World Trade Center at that time. And as I was in the taxi cab, I was debating whether to go to the law firm, the workers' compensation law firm, straight away to begin work, or whether I should go check in, drop off my bags at the hotel, have lunch, and then start work that day. And I decided that I had a lot to do, so I decided to go straight to the law firm. The law firm was at 11 Park Place, which was right down the street from the World Trade Center. Um, so I decided I could just take my bags with me and then head over to the hotel after uh, the day of work. I arrived at the law firm right around 11.30, 11.45 that day. And I remember that because between 12 or 12.15 that day, February 26, 1993, was the first World Trade Center bomb attack where many were killed and hundreds severely injured. And I would have been in the World Trade Center checking into the hotel and having lunch at that time when the bomb went off um, had I decided to go to the hotel rather than straight to the law firm down the street. And a postscript to that is on September 10th, 2001, I was in Stamford, Connecticut at my client American Color Graphics office doing work. I did um, much of their legal work at that time. And I was there with the general counsel, Tim Davis. And um, the next morning, September 11th, I had a meeting in 
Lower Manhattan. Um, that was to begin around 11.30 or noon. And um, I was very good friends with Tim. So he suggested I just sleep over at his house on September 10th and that he would take me to the train station September 11th for my train that was scheduled to arrive into the World Trade Center at 9 a.m. That morning we were heading to the train station and um, out of the left-hand corner of my eye, I saw a restaurant that was serving breakfast and I said to Tim, hey Tim, um, there's a breakfast restaurant here. My meeting in Lower Manhattan is until like 11.30 or so. I can take the next train, get in plenty of time. Why don't we have breakfast? So Tim said, fine. And we pulled into the restaurant. We were having breakfast at around 9.07 a.m. And there was a television behind me. And Tim looked at me and said, I don't think you'll be taking your train to the World Trade Center today. And I said, why? And he said, look. And I turned around and there was a picture of the plane that had flown into the World Trade Center at 9.07 a.m., which was right about the time, a few minutes after my train was scheduled to arrive in the World Trade Center. Now, as I mentioned in a prior podcast, on my last day in New York after five years of litigating that racketeering case, I was waiting for a taxi outside of my building and a gentleman was next to me and we no taxis were coming. It was a cold snowy day and I asked him where he was going and he was going in the same direction I was and I offered to share the next taxi that came with him and we did and he asked me what I was doing in New York and I told him in about 30 seconds and told him I was going back to Nashville and he said his wife was in the music business as I've mentioned in prior podcasts and did I have a card because they go to Nashville for music conferences and they would call me and we could have dinner together next time they were in Nashville. I had one card on me. I gave it to him. Off I went. And sometime later, maybe six months, maybe nine months, I got a phone call from him saying, remember, we shared a taxi on your last day in New York. He was in Nashville. He introduced me to his wife who introduced me to Bridgeport Music and Westbound Records. And on May 4th, 2001, I filed a lawsuit against basically the entire rap music industry for copyright infringement um, on behalf of Bridgeport Music and Westbound Records, thus starting my career as an entertainment litigator. The Butterfly Effect. The sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic, non-linear system can result in large differences in a later state. I often think about all of those events that I just described. Had I not seen that sign for the LSAT, had I not decided pretty much on a lark to take the LSAT, had I not applied to one or two law schools, had the student who chose not to take pretty much the last slot decided to take it, had I not interviewed on the day that Judge Parker had a trial so that he needed me to come back, which made me more memorable? Had I not been standing in the hallway in February of 1993 after Bob Ballou took a call from 
the Tribune company about an issue in New York. Had I decided to check into the World Trade Center Hotel on February 26, 1993, had I not recommended that we file a racketeering case that kept me in New York for five years, had I not seen the restaurant on September 11, 2001 and instead taken the train to the World Trade Center, had I not thought to offer to share a taxi with the gentleman sitting next to me on my last day in New York, my life may have been, would have been dramatically different. Would not have met the many incredible people and incredible clients that I've met over the last 20 years. Would not have met, just off the top of my head, James Taylor, Al Bell, Jan Gay, Joel Martin, Armin, Palladian from Bridgeport Music and Westbound Records. And the list just goes on and on and on. And the lives of my family would be very different. Hell, my children might not even exist. And this butterfly effect made me wonder about alternate realities where a different decision was made. And I happened to just Google it because I was curious. And you would be shocked at the number of scientists who subscribe to the theory that there are millions, if not billions, of alternate realities based on the Big Bang Theory. I don't pretend to understand it. And that every decision we make creates an alternate reality where perhaps we made a different decision in that reality. Literally, there are numerous articles about it. And if you're curious, like I was, you should read it, but it is pretty mind-blowing. I will just say this, I'm happy to be in this one because in this one, things have turned out pretty well. And of course, in this one, there exists blurred laws and life with 62 followers on Instagram and soon to be more than 180 million. That's right, Rock. We are coming for you. I hope you've enjoyed this very philosophical edition of Blurred Laws in Life, dedicated to the butterfly effect. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you all again next week.